certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. According to the state's fibre expert, there's a very strong chance that Kira Glennon was in Bradley Edwards' car. It's day 81 of Claremont in Conversation. Natalie Bongiolo, Tim Clark and forensic scientist Brendan Chapman with you for this late sitting as the trial crosses to the UK. But Tim, not before you heard from two witnesses from the taxi industry. Now, of course, we know police focused very heavily on cabbies in the early days. What did these witnesses reveal? Well, this was um, a little bit of backtracking again, Matt, uh, a little bit like we uh, covered last night. Um, and these were, as you say, two um, sort of operation managers from the two main taxi companies that operated in Perth and the uh, surrounding suburbs in the mid-90s. One was called Swan Taxis, named after our uh, state bird, the Black Swan, which appears on the state flag. And the other was Black and White Taxis. I'm not entirely sure why they were called that, but uh, it's <laughs> probably by the way. And these two uh, people were called to basically go back through their historical records um, to show um, journeys taken um, on the days, particularly that Sarah went missing and then Jane went missing. But also Kira's movements around the time of her disappearance were also explored. You know, it might seem incredible, um, but a, a box of floppy disks was uh, uncovered in some dusty recess of the Swan Taxi's office, which did hold... All these um, type, all this type of information. Um, every every journey which was taken, logged, and, and completed um, in 1996 and 1997, and they were able to then dust off an old computer, uh, put the disk into the computer, and somehow managed to download all this information, which was then placed on a spreadsheet. And um, on the screen in court, we saw the computer log for Sarah's call made um, in the hours before she disappeared or the minutes before she disappeared actually um now it wasn't any it wasn't information that we didn't know already but the point of calling this well more to the point of calling this was for jane and kira in particular to see whether they made any different journeys or other journeys that we hadn't heard about um particularly on the days they went missing now we know that um jane did take a taxi um, from um, the, the, uh, a spot close to where her mum worked at a, at a hotel there um, into the area where she eventually ended up spending most of the evening. And that was also logged and we saw that. Um, but there were questions about Kira and whether she might have called the taxi on the evening before or after she disappeared or we think she disappeared. Um, and, and so there was positive searches, i.e. forced journeys that they might have taken, but also um, what they call targeted searches for um, calls or um, fares um, made over that time period um, for anyone called Jane or Kira or Sarah um, to see if there was any more information that might be useful to the police. Um, and the upshot was um, there wasn't. And that was done for both Swan taxis and black and white um, and their their respective operations managers were called just to um just to talk us through those records 
And I understand that detectives had requested information on specific cab numbers. Did anything come mm. of that? Um, no, not really. We, we weren't really told why those two specific cabs, they were two specific cab numbers, as you say, um, were looked at. But again, having sat through the case for so long now and reading between the lines, I am assuming, and this is only my assumption, it might be proved wrong, but um, I hope not, is that those cabs might have been Holden Commodores because we know the importance, obviously, of the Holden Commodore. And if it could have been shown that one or other of Jane or Kira was in a Holden Commodore, um, in the hours before her death, then that might provide an alternative source for some of those fibres. So we think, or I think, that's possibly why right. they were they were searched for. Um, and it was again shown that n- neither of those cabs made any relevant journeys in that area or at all, in fact, on the nights that Jane and Kira went missing. Right. So then you moved on to later in the afternoon and Dr Ray Palmer was back to give evidence and Ms Babagallo started by, you know, basically asking him how common blue fibres are. But almost mm. immediately this led to Mr Jovich not being happy. So what was this about? Yeah, um, this is a bit of a legal um, uh, turning point or round table or whatever you want to call it. Um, it I mean, it was a little bit of a stumbling block. Um, Mr. Palmer was a, a, a just about to launch into some evidence about the way that, um, uh, fabrics are dyed and the variances and how some batches of dye can differ from the others, which relates to the the, the, the way then they're analysed at the end of that process. And, and he was just about to launch into that, and Mr. Yorich objected, um, basically saying, well, we haven't been given notice of this portion of the evidence, even though... Mr. Palmer had actually written a paper on it, and, a, and that paper that he'd written was um, quoted or cited in some of his reports and and, uh, and his statements. So that that caused a little bit of a flurry of uh, activity amongst the uh, the guys in black gowns up the front of the court. Um, <laughs> it, it, it was resulted in about a half hour stasis for us, um, but it was all sorted out in the end. Um, and um, and on we went, and Judge Justice Hall ruled, look, I'll hear the evidence, and I'll give you some time to process it, um, and if you want to cross-examine it, then I'll give you more time to do that, um, as it turns out, tomorrow. So, um, as we discussed, um, it's, sometimes these issues crop up, but as we're on day 81, I, I'm probably safe to say that there hasn't been that many of them, and thank God, although... although um, if they had, then we might not be as far along as we are. Okay, so basically they've, they've come to an agreement, they've continued mm. on, and and then I suppose um, they moved on to, you know, Dr Palmer being questioned about, you know, his opinion on the various fibres that are fain, found in Jane and Kira's hair. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this was his, the c- conclusion, basically, the final sort of hour and a bit of his, of his evidence, which, as we discussed last night, is his opinions... Um, and his analysis of all that work done over those so many years at the Chem Centre, which have resulted in these 98 critical fibres. And I suppose the critical point of, of, the, um, of the evidence and the culmination of his evidence on the prosecution side, or his evidence in chief, as it's known, um, was his summing up of the likelihood of Jane and Kira having been in not just any old Commodore, but that Commodore, Mr Edwards' Commodore. 
um, on the night that they were murdered. And the way that Mr. Um, Dr. Palmer described it is um, they have a, what they call a scale of support, which is a, a sliding scale, basically, that they can rank the likelihood of these um, events occurring based on the combination of fibres that are found on a person. And as we, as we know, there's a combination of blue and grey fibres, which are said to be on both women, which are said to have come, both come from Mr. Edwards' pants and Mr. Edwards' car. When it came to Jane, um, uh, so the, I, I should explain the scale of support is, is a seven-stage scale, and it goes from no support at all to extremely strong support from for this proposed hypothesis with various ranks in between. And so when discussing Jane, um, Dr. Palmer said that in his opinion, given the number of fibres, the combination of fibres, that there was strong support, which is number five out of the seven, mm-hmm. um, for that hypothesis that Jane was in that car um, in the hours before she died. And for Kira, he came to the conclusion that there was very strong support. So the sixth out of seven on that scale. And that was because there were more fibres on Kira and more combinations of fibres because she had the the carpet fibres as well as the seat insert fibres and the blue fibres. And there there were more of the blue fibres and they were found on her clothing and in her hair. So that's given all those variables. He, he concluded that there was very strong likelihood that she was in that car. So, um, so that was the conclusion he came to, um, and uh, on the on the scale of 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 the scale that he gave, um, it was it was pretty high up. Yeah, Brendan, is this a, a common thing that's used? This seven point scale. Um, I, I, I've never heard of it. Um, I, the, it's common to use a. a scale of you know an arbitrary scale of you know high medium low one to ten you know similar to when you go to the doctor i suppose and they say on a scale of one to ten how much pain are you currently in it gives it it's a it's a way of converting um you know this kind of abstract idea of how much into something we can understand like we understand a volume um you know, on a, on a stereo and we understand a scale of one to 10. So um, how they've derived the seven points, I'm incredibly interested to find yeah. out um, <laughs> because, I mean, from a DNA background, I'd love to see some statistics behind that yeah. um, that support those, for want of a better word, arbitrary um, numbers. Um, but I'm sure Dr. Palmer has um, plenty of, uh, background support for that. Tim, I'm really interested because when it, when we in forensics and in court, when we come to delivering um, these ty- this type of evidence and these types of conclusion, the the words that a forensic scientist uses um, can be very, very particular and take on a very in order to describe a very particular meaning. So I'm really curious as to the differentiation between Dr. Palmer's conclusions with regards to this car versus Dr. Palmer's conclusions regarding a Commodore of similar era and, you know, um, similar make model, all all of that. Did he differentiate that? 
Well, no, but uh, well, he did and he didn't because the specific question that was asked by Ms. Barbara Gallo in the last five minutes of his ed- evidence related to Mr. Edwards's car, 1BPX080, which is the registration number at the time. And the, and the questions pointed to that car, stated that car, and that was the opinion that was based on. Now, Dr. Palmer had gone through yesterday um, talking about um, the, the combinations. Um, and it's the fact that, so the, the seat inserts fibres compared and um, combined with the carpet fibres and then the seat insert fibres in Jane's case combined with the boot fibre that was found in her hair and then the fact that there were these blue fibres also found in the car um, that had been driven by Mr Edwards so he used all these variables and combinations to come to to that conclusion that um, uh, and obviously using the exemplars that um, the chem centre had done and the direct comparisons with the fibres from the girls to the that actual car, um, which which in in many cases corresponded, um, to use their specific term, um, that that was the the the, uh, the conclusion that he came to. But as I mentioned yesterday, what the defence expert has to say about that, yeah. um, um, we're yet to hear, um, and it'll be very interesting to see if he diverges um, markedly from that, um, because these are two gentlemen that have worked together in the UK they're very similar in expertise very similar in um, experience and giving um, evidence in serious court cases so to hear them both um, within a short space of time if they have widely differing opinions then that will really um, that will really test um, Justice Hall's um, um, scale of justice. It really depends on the question that's put to the expert as well yeah and like you said um, the prosecution hypothesis is is regarding one particular car um but a similar a similar question put under a different hypothesis of could this car or another car of the same era make and model also be of the same um same level of of match to use that word again um and the answer to that could very likely be yes as well Mm. Yeah, it's very interesting what you say, Brendan. You know, Dr. Ray Palmer, he's obviously a world-leading fibre expert. He's got 35 years in the game. But do you think forensic scientists from, you know, all over the globe would be looking keenly at this evidence? Um, I definitely think um, forensic scientists with an interest in in fibre um, databasing and fibre evidence will because uh, this is this is quite a... Uh, oh, a bit of a landmark sort of sort of case, I suppose, in that area, and and the the focus we're seeing on the fibres and the conclusions derived from it. So I do suspect there's there's quite a bit of um, the forensic science community watching it. Mm-hmm. I also suspect that we will see some some outcomes of this in in a way of case reports published through. Um, journals like the Australian Journal of Forensic Science, for instance, where we can we can as a forensic community probably look a little bit further into 
what's going on behind the closed doors as well, rather than just what we're hearing in the courtrooms, which will be which will be quite interesting to, to see come through as well in in probably the coming years at conferences and, and in publications. Yeah. Mm. Tim, was Dr Palmer also asked to give this same kind of a conclusion in terms of the blue polyester fibres found on both victims and the shorts of the Karakata rape victim? Yeah, yeah, and that and that was um, another tranche of the uh, of the conclusion, um, uh, or the concluding statements that he was asked to make, or opinions that he was asked to give. Um, and as we know, the two blue fibres found on the shorts were compared by the Chem Centre, and they were a uh, a corresponding um, properties to um, fibres found both on Jane and Kira. And when he was asked, well, what would you conclude from that? And um, Dr. Palmer says, well, given um, that we know that Mr. Edwards has admitted um, to the Karakata offences, um, he said, "I." and given that the, the fibres call correspond, he would say that I would expect them or, or it would be highly likely that they would be from the same source, i.e. Mr. Edwards, because... Um, you know, if you follow that logic through, well, he, we know he was a Karakata. We know he was in contact with a Karakata victim um, and the fibres were there. And then the fibres are on Jane and on Kira as well. So, um, you know, cutting cu- cutting through the dust, his conclusion was, yes, it was Mr Edwards that was in contact with Jane and Kira. I find it quite interesting that because it's very specific terminology that he's using, isn't it? I mean, he's basically saying, you know, uh, I would highly likely conclude that this mm. is from Mr. Edwards' pants. Mm, yeah. Well, it's, it's, and it's uh, the, the, the debate that I think we've had two weeks in a row now, Brendan, about the semantics of this forensic evidence and the never say never on the one hand, but the never say always on the other hand, I suppose, yeah. because he can't say for absolute certainty because he literally wasn't there um, and there is no video recording, unfortunately, of those last hours of those um, of those two young women's lives, so um, he can conclude what he can conclude, conclude on the evidence in front of him, but he can. Um, it's um, it's never going to be a hundred percent one way or the other. Yeah, that's right. Um, so then uh, I'm expecting that Dr. Palmer was cross-examined, and what uh, turned up out of that? Well, yeah. So the cross-examination did start now, um, and it did go quite late, um, and it didn't finish. So we will conclude that tomorrow. Um, there was a lot of reprisal um, and, and sort of going over of what Dr. Palmer had said. Um, the interesting notes out of it, I suppose, were a little bit more detail about his comments regarding the, um, you know, probably primitive um, practices, forensic practices that were um, that were around in 1996-97, which were obviously tape recorded, and so he was able to see that in in in, um, in the first person, um, and he made some more comments about that, and we heard some more of his notes made about that. Um, and then there was one main thing that stuck out to me was he was asked about one of the fibres in Jane's hair. There was this one single so-called boot fibre. It was the uh, the fibre that's supposed to match or corresponds to the carpet that was laid in the boot area of that Commodore. And there was one single um, fibre of, of that type. Um Mr. Jovic rewound us all the way back to uh, a witness by the name of Barry Moss, who was the um, photographer 
forensic photographer at Jane Rimmer's um, deposition site, and Mr. Mott gave evidence for, uh, for a couple of days from memory. And we rewound almost 6,000 pages in the transcript to when Mr. Mott was um, giving you his evidence about the overalls that he wore at Jane's um, dump site and, and, and how he got there and, and how those overalls then got on him. And uh, Mr. Jovich reminded us that Mr. Mott had said that he thought he had arrived at the scene in a Holden Commodore and then he had got his overalls out of the boot and put them on and then gone to the scene and was taking photographs at the scene, which um, obviously had him in quite close contact or quite close proximity to Jane um, or Jane's remains, but not actually in contact with him um, or him to her. And um, Mr. Dr. Palmer was asked his opinion as to, as to whether he thought there was a possibility that a fibre out of that Holden Commodore, the, the, the police issue Holden Commodore as it was, could have got onto the overalls of Mr. Mott and then somehow got into Jane's hair via a secondary transfer. And um, Dr. Palmer said it wasn't impossible, but he said that in the scenario, as it was explained, because there was an actual no actual physical contact, because they were outside and there was, in, you know, there were there were, there were weather conditions and various other um, in, uh, environmental um, things in play. He said that it was an, a not not a not a likely. Um, circumstance, not a likely outcome, but um, it wasn't an impossible um, scenario as to a possible source of contamination. But that's obviously just the contamination of one single fibre where we have um, 98 critical fibres to, uh, um, to consider. Yeah, it, that's very interesting. And Brendan, as you know, we've sort of discussed in some ways, it does seem like the fibres are much more difficult to nail down. Yeah, um, definitely. And, and I mean, it goes to what we probably have all experienced um, in, you know, simple household scenarios where, for instance, you you might drop a piece of clothing on the carpet and pick it up and you realise you've, you've immediately got carpet fibres attached to it. Or, you know, that situation where, you know, a housemate puts a towel through the wash with all of your black clothing and 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 your clothing ends up covered in towel fibres. Like, it's, it's something that everyone's actually probably quite aware of aware of but don't understand or don't realise the forensic context of these tiny little things that we all see as quite a pest and, and are trying to remove from our clothes so we don't you know, look like we've been rolling around with the cats um, is actually a really important mechanism for transfer of, of uh, trace, trace evidence yep. in an event of, of a crime. Yeah. And Tim, what about fibre loss? Did Mr Jovic ask Dr Palmer about that? Yeah, he did. And he asked him quite specific questions, actually, as to whether there was any studies as to the amount of um, fibres that one person might have on, on them at any one time. Um, and then the subsequent loss um, through various um, um, activities or uh, um, conditions that, that one might be um, one might be subjected to. Um Earlier on in his evidence, Dr. Palmer had actually cited a study which said that um, you will lose, or a, a person might lose, if, if they, there is a, a 
a bunch of fibres transferred to you, for instance, um, through um, close contact, you might lose 80% of those um, fibres in the first two hours um, if you are a living person. Mm-hmm. So, i.e. moving, running, um, in contact with other surfaces, your car seats or whatever, whatever it might be. Um, for a deceased person, um, the studies tend to show that it would take two days for you to lose up to 80% of those fibres that might have transferred to you. Um, but obviously that is then subject to weather conditions, um, whether you're submerged in water or not. Um, you, know, or, you know, you can think of a million different scenarios uh, as to what might happen um, to a body um, in, 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 inside or outside a, a, a property. Um, but there, are, there have been studies done on that. Um, he also said he had tried to conduct a study of that himself um, in the UK, but the facility does not exist in the UK and for ethical reasons over there, whereby an actual human deceased person can be used um, or a cadaver could be used for that testing purposes because they don't have uh, their colloquially known as body farms and they're not allowed in the UK but they are allowed here in, in the US and so he his study uh, Dr Palmer's study was performed um, using pig carcasses um, and uh, fibers were placed on pig carcasses and then exposed to the elements and um, and and the results um, tabulated so uh, it, it is as Brendan's mentioned fascinating to know that there is this little clique of scientists all over the world that are studying these things um, in, in such detail um, and perhaps as we've said before the, the sort of fiber um, portion of, of, of criminology um, hasn't been fully appreciated certainly not by me until I've sat through for the last month or so um, the, the amount of work that goes and the amount of thinking that goes the thought the processes that go into it as well um, thinking up all the different variables that, that might um, preclude or um, mean that a fibre does or doesn't cross from one person to another. Yeah, I mean, I guess, Brendan, you would have had a lot of experience in this and, and um, the idea of how they try and find out these kind of details. It must be really quite difficult to add in all the various elements that could come into play. Oh, it, absolutely, Nat. Um, a lot of the experiment, experiments and research that, that we do are derived from real scenarios or real courtroom situations that either ourselves or our, um, you know, our industry collaborators have encountered or they've been asked questions on the stand where they've been asked, oh, what is the likelihood or what is the possibility of this happening? And the answer on the stand on, on that given day is, well, we actually don't know. We can't answer that. And that, and that's how these these kind of projects and research spin off um, to situations where, yeah, like like um, Tim's just mentioned, you're you're putting pigs out in a in a uh, environment and you're dosing them with fibres to try best to replicate what what you could do in a real scenario. And this is sometimes the difficulty in what we do as well is it's not always possible as as tim's just mentioned to perfectly replicate um an actual situation and and the example there is using pigs instead of actual humans because of ethical and um some of the other reasons around that 
And so what we do is we kind of derive these results that give us an indication, um, but there always are a number of limitations that go with that. And that's exactly the case here um, where we're using pigs and we can say, look, this is what we've seen in pigs. Mm. We don't know if that would be identical in humans, but we also do know that pigs are the closest um, analogue, I suppose, in forensics that we use to humans. Yeah. Well, we have another very interesting question for you. Um, This one is from Jennifer. It's quite long, but she makes an interesting point. If I'm correct in assuming that a pair of Telstra pants from the 1996-97 era were obtained in 2018 for the testing and comparison of fibres on the victims and vehicle involved in the trial evidence, then there are a number of factors that might contribute to the evidence or lack thereof of these fibres. The pants were made up of three fibres, blue polyester, blue delusted rayon and blue lusted rayon. Each of these fibres may have a different inherent strength which would contribute to their sheddability. If up to 24 years have passed, then I would have thought that the fibres would more readily degrade and sheddable now than back in the 90s, which might account for the increased sheddability of the fibres when tested against the white lab coat. Strength and durability of the different fibres that constitute the trouser fabric, their wear and tear, and they've been washed, including the temperature and detergents and how they've been stored, either in the darkness or a room, would surely all play a part in how an individual fibre might respond after almost a quarter of a century. Jennifer, you are listening very closely. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like Jennifer was uh, giving evidence at one point. It did for a moment there. (laughs) I was was just about to offer Jennifer an opportunity to undertake the research. (laughs) Yeah. yeah, reach, reach out and we can, we can do this <laughs> in, in experimental conditions. Um, yeah. Seriously, though, this, this is ex- kind of exactly the point that I was just making, and that is we can hypothesise and we can draw conclusions on the basis of our best guess um, or best educated guess from what we've seen, from studies we've done, but it never will... Comp- or very rarely will completely replicate the situation we're seeing. And this is a perfect example. There are so many variables here that, yep, we could we could do a single research project where we look at all of these variables um, and we'll have the answers for you in 24 years because we have to take <laughs> a, a pair of clothing and we have to put it through the same conditions. So it's incredibly difficult to do. Um, and this is why we... we were awarded as, as I suppose, um, well, forensic experts and scientists in court, this um, privilege of being allowed to offer our opinion, yes. which no one else in court is actually allowed to do. Um, anyone else standing in a courtroom has to provide basically the facts, what they saw, what they did, um, whereas an expert is able to then kind of go that extra step and say, but in my opinion, this is what I think. And and that's and that's then on in a normal court, the jury, and in this situation, the judge, to take that and evaluate that and determine whether th- that he, he values that opinion, whether he believes that opinion to be, you know, using hopefully the best knowledge available. And then, you know, we end up with a guilty or not guilty at, at the end of it. But yeah, really, really good point. Um, and 
I would imagine, completely not being a fibre person myself, that there's a huge <laughs> number of factors here that could skew the results a little bit. Yeah. Um, yeah. How far they move outside of those norms that that the experts are reporting, I, I, can't, I certainly can't say. Um, but, yeah, very, very interesting point, Jennifer. And I'll add to that 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 is the, the, the exact reasons that Jennifer's outlined there, the, the, the age and the washing, the laundering, the drying in the sun, all those things, they were taken, they, they, that, the, the prosecution thought of that exact point and thought, well, they're going to, if we just have these pants and these shorts, then surely the defence are going to say, well, they're 25 years old. They're not the, the, as it would have been at the time. So that is why they then went to the lengths of tracking down the manufacturer and getting this swatch, so an original piece of the fabric that the pants were made up of, so they could compare those fibres as well. And so that's why, in part, why the uh, the 98 fibres took so long to go through in court, because when we were talking about the comparisons to the, the other the, the critical fibers they weren't just comparing the critical fiber to one possible source they were comparing it to three they were comparing it to the pants to the shorts and to the swatch and to see what they came up with um so and you know it, it, it's an opposite question to exactly what brandon was talking about the infinite number of variables um that that play into these things means that the opinion is only an opinion, but it is the best opinion that they could try and find in the world um, on this subject matter um, um, from these experts. Yeah. I mean, prior to this trial, who would have thought that a tiny fabric or tiny fabrics would be so complicated? It's just extraordinary. Um mm. Now, Tim, before we go, Justice Hall laid out a much clearer timeline of what's ahead in the coming days and also weeks. Yes, yes, he did. He was um, keen to um, to know where we're all going, including himself, I think. So that, was, <laughs> that took up the first 15 minutes of the case today or the, or the court time today. So we will finish Dr. Palmer's evidence tomorrow, that is for sure, um, because the video link is the video link and all the things that go with it. Um, that will mean that another late night sitting um, for us uh, um, close Claremont watchers and we have a cu another couple of witnesses that we don't know about um, that start in the morning then on Monday um, we move on, we move on, the fibres will be done or for the prosecution fibres will be done I should say and we move on, on Monday we might get um, what's been labelled the sort of homicide statistical um, um, portion of the trial, but Mr. Yovich has, we think, some sort of some sort of objection to that, either on its relevance or on the weight that the judge should put on it. So, we think that's going to take up most of Monday, um, where the 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 legal argument about it, and then the the uh, the, the evidence itself. Um, then on Tuesday, we think. Um, morning or afternoon we will get to the investigating officer in the case that's detective um, joe marapodi who has sat in every single day of this trial he's sick of the sight of me and i'm probably <laughs> sick of the sight of him a little bit a little bit because he's been very very kind and very um uh, very gracious to all of us that have sat through the trial um in what is obviously a very important trial for him and the west australian police force he will be um called to the stand on tuesday um, and will give um, his evidence, which will be, we think, the last witness 
for the prosecution in this trial after nearly six months. Including in that will be the interview with Mr Edwards, with that um, Detective Maripodi was one of the two detectives that conducted that interview with Mr Edwards. That was videotaped, obviously, and that will be shown. Six and a half hours the interview went for. We learned today, well, after court, actually, that that, that, edit, that that video has been edited down a little bit to take out portions that are not thought to be relevant to the judge. So that will go for about four and a half hours. So we think um, that will take us through Tuesday and into Wednesday. Um, and then there will be a little bit of cross-examination of Detective Maripodi um, by, the, um, by Mr Jovich. And then the prosecution will close its case now on Wednesday, we think. But there is a spanner in the works. There's always a spanner in the works <laughs> when it comes to Claremont. There is the potential for a, we learned today, um, the court to be closed for a particular witness. Now, Justice Hall has been very, very strict on closing the court, and he basically hasn't done it no. at all during this trial. But there is one set of circumstances which we think might um, warrant that, and that would be an undercover police officer, a covert operative, as they're known here, giving evidence. Um, they give evidence most times, not all the time, but most times in a closed court for a couple of reasons. One, to protect their own identity because they're a covert operative and they don't want every Tom, Dick and Harry in the court knowing, well, that's an undercover officer and that's what he looks like. And two, there are operational reasons, i.e. the police don't really want to give away their secrets as to how covert operatives go about their business, what they do, what they talk about, how they talk about it, whether they use, you know, um, back channel communication, all those type of things. So they're, 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 and they're, they're, they're solid reasons for a, for a judge to close the court. So there is the possibility that that might be at some stage next week, but there is going to be some... Um, uh, back channel discussions between the uh, the defence and the prosecution as to whether that will take place. So, so that's the um, that's the immediate map. Um, and then a little bit further on, Justice Hall has come up with a plan. So when all the evidence is finished, which we think now will be, you know, maybe in a couple of weeks, mm. um, depending on how long the defence goes for, obviously, after that, Justice Hall is going to take a break of a month four weeks for the prosecution and defense to formulate their closing arguments to him. Um, he's offered them the chance to do written submissions, which, which are obviously what they are. They are written submissions that are, um, that are placed before him to say, this is our argument um, about all the evidence and how you should see it on both sides. And um, so he's given them a month to, He's going to give them a month to do that if they wish to. Um, and then he's going to take a week after that month to um, read them and digest them. And then we will we'll come back and we will hear a pricey or a part or uh, an oral closing submission from both sides as well, um, which will take as long as it takes. It probably won't take as long as it would have done if they weren't written. Um, I would think probably up to a week um, between Miss Barbagallo and Mr. Jovic, standing up and basically giving their closing submissions, giving their final address to the judge to say, This is why 
on the prosecution side, Mr. Edwards, it should be convicted, and on the defence side, why you should acquit him. Um, and so, and then we will be off um, into the wild blue yonder until Justice Hall calls us all back for uh, um, for his verdict, um, whenever that day might be. So, yeah, um, after five months, we it, it did feel like the beginning of the end today. I've got to yeah, say, right. um, it certainly will be the end of Fibers tomorrow. And then, um, then we will be getting to the um, to the very end of the prosecution case, and and then um, we'll see what happens after that. And with the defence, of course, um, it's very hard to gauge how long they will take because at this stage, as you've mentioned, we only know about one of their witnesses, which is a fibre witness. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, and there obviously is one witness that we all do want to know about, and yeah. that's Mr Edwards, potential witness. Yeah. Now, look, if I'm being honest, I think the chances of Mr Edwards giving evidence are pretty low, in mm. fact, very low, um, for a variety of reasons. One, he doesn't have to. He just simply doesn't have to give evidence if he doesn't want to. It's entirely up to him, but if he chooses to, obviously he gets to put his side of the story, but... On the flip side, he then has to answer prosecution questions. Um, and if you had a choice, um, do you know, I mean, any of the listeners out there, if you, I wouldn't accuse them of anything like what Mr. Edwards is accused of, but if you had a choice, um, I, I think I know what I would say, and I'm pretty sure I know what most people would say. Um, but that is his prerogative. We will find out that very soon. Very next soon. Week, in fact, there, um, next week, when, when the defence, uh, when the prosecution closes, That'll be the first question that Justice Hall asks of Mr. Yovich. Does your client wish to give evidence? And we will find out um, one way or the other. If he does, then I'll be shocked. It'll be a bombshell. <laughs> we'll, we'll probably all be here for another month or so. But um, we'll, we'll, cross, we'll cross that bridge when we come to it. It is going to be a very, very interesting week ahead. Thank you both it so is. much for your time, especially sitting so late. Uh, we hope that you can join us tomorrow to wrap up week 20 with myself, Tim and Alison Fan. Day 82 of Claremont in Conversation. We'll chat to you then. This podcast is hosted by Natalie Bongiolo, produced by Kate Ryan, and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. And if local news delivered differently appeals to you, tune into WA's newest morning show, The West Live with Jenna Clark. It's talkback radio, but without the interruptions. Listen live weekdays from 8.45am on thewest.com.au or catch up with the podcast.